This Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief of the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 163. At least half of the most popular apps used in a workplace by LastPass user are popular consumer applications. And 70% of our surveyed users say that there is no difference in password created for working personal accounts. The notion that your work life and your home life are separate is pretty well dead at this point, but in the realm of security, that's a problem. In part two of our podcast this week, we speak with Yasser Masudnia, the Senior Director of Product Management at LogMeIn, about how the blurry line between personal and work identities is complicating the job of securing enterprise networks. But first, if you want to understand what companies are thinking about cyber risk, a good place to go might be the insurance industry, which helps companies across the economy hedge their risk of cyber attack. That's why a recent survey by the insurer Marsh and Microsoft caught our eye. The second annual cyber risk perception survey took the temperature of 1,500 executives and IT professionals at companies across the globe. One finding, those companies have never spent more on cybersecurity and never felt less secure. To understand why confidence in cybersecurity has actually gone down despite increased spending, We sat down with Kevin Richards, the global lead for cyber risk consulting at Marsh, which is the world's largest insurance and cyber insurance brokerage. Cybersecurity, Richards notes, might be harder than companies anticipated. That means Marsh's survey may have uncovered what amounts to evidence of the Dunning-Kruger effect at many companies, where lack of knowledge and expertise in information security leads them to overestimate their capabilities only to see their perceptions of their cyber savvy plummet as they learn more about what it actually takes to defend themselves. It's a fascinating conversation, and to start off, I ask Kevin just to tell us a bit more about Marge and the work that he does there. Kevin Richards, I'm the global lead for cyber risk consulting for Marsh. Marsh is one of these great companies that's been around for 149 years that has been in the... Just like Security Ledger. Yeah, (laughs) it's in the risk management business. The way that most people think about Marsh is uh, we're the world's largest insurance brokerage and also coincidentally, the world's largest cyber insurance brokerage. I'm in the consulting side. We actually have a group that's called Marsh Risk Consulting. The name is actually quite descriptive. We're, We're here to try to help our clients kind of understand that risk landscape, measure how big and bad the economic impact of that exposure is, and then think through the strategies of how I want to address that risk. So we're here to talk about a really interesting survey that, that Marsh put out uh, in conjunction with Microsoft, the uh, risk perception survey. And I thought maybe just to start off, tell us a little bit about that. What we wanted to look at was a little bit different and try to understand how do people feel about cybersecurity? What is their perception of is it getting better or getting worse? And to start to characterize how business executives 
are viewing this issue, this new risk peril, for lack of a better way of saying it, and try, try to get the, get an understanding of how they view the problem, not necessarily from a pure technological perspective, but more from that business side of view. We ended up getting uh, a little over 1,500 respondents. And it was really great because we got really nice distribution across of all of the different annual revenue sizes. So we got a good cross sample of small to large. And then we also included a number of roles that participated from C-suite and board members to information security and IT people, to risk and finance people, legal and compliance. So we really were looking at that business executive across a whole range of company sizes. And one one of the things that you found in this survey that you did with Microsoft is that uh, cyber risk and fears of cyber attacks are very much top of mind for the executives that you spoke to. So, you know, companies have been doing risk management for a long time. Cyber risk has kind of popped up maybe on their radar in the last 20 years. But now at this late date in 2019, it is among the top concerns that they have risk-wise. Um, talk just about that kind of evolution and, and how you think we, we got here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is actually one of those areas that I think is actually one of the most provocative areas of the, of the research. But but to your point, yeah, so, so there was an increase in concern around cyber risk when we look at the, the prior year of 2017 to 2019, uh, we had a really significant increase where, where cyber risk was the number one risk for business executives. Two years ago, 6% of the, the respondents said it was the number one risk. In this year's uh, research, 22% said it was. So it went up 16 percentage points, which is a huge jump. Then the the next uh, set of options was, it wasn't my number one risk, but it is absolutely in my top five. That percentage-wise was about the same. Uh, It was 56% in 2017, and it was 57% in 2019. But the aggregate, it showed a pretty... You know, big growth where it's almost 80% of the executives said that this is either the number one or the top five in my top five uh, of, of risks that I need to worry about. Um, so, so first, huge, huge visibility on it. The, um, the thing that, that's also interesting with that is, and, and this is where it gets somewhat provocative, is that um, while the concern on this went up pretty dramatically, we actually saw for the first time that the confidence in our capability to defend against cyber disruption actually went down. Uh, and, it, and it didn't go down a lot. It went, it went from 29% being highly confident to 23% being highly confident. So it dropped 6%. But the fact that it went the opposite direction, I thought was wildly provocative, especially when you overlay some of the other elements that we see in the marketplace. Uh, Some of the industry analysts have talked about, we've never spent more on cybersecurity. And we've seen numbers like last year, we spent $150 billion on products and consultants and outsourcers and contractors and all these things 
to improve our capability. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we, we've never spent more. It's my top concern and the confidence in our ability to actually defend actually went down, which is I, I thought was a really interesting, provocative point. And we've spent a lot of time internally trying to dissect this of how is that possible? Are we just not getting better? And one of the things, and, and Paul, I'd love to get your perspective on this. And, and certainly when you get this out to, to the people that are listening to the podcast is that is all of this new attention and all these new tools that provide all this new awareness, is it actually showing that this is a little harder than we thought? And maybe that is leading to the fact that our confidence is starting to erode a little bit. Not really sure. That, that's a theory, but I would be open to your thought on that. I mean, I wonder if it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect where low low ability people tend to have very high estimation of, of their actual ability to do something. And as they learn more about it, their sense of their own competency declines to yeah. a certain point. And then, of course, as they go from competency to mastery, then their confidence and their ability starts to increase again. So you get this sort of trough. You couple that with the, the headline du jour of the big company that had an event, you've got to start questioning, are we as good as we thought we were? Yeah. Well, and obviously, as you get, as you start to really monitor and measure and get insights into your security posture, that's going to give you cause for concern. And my guess is that would lower your sense of being, okay, we got our, you know, we got our T's crossed and our I's dotted. By virtue of having more and better data, you're going to feel less secure in the world. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, right. Because if you start becoming aware, then you can start thinking about it a little bit more holistically and you can actually do something about it. Other things that we found in here that I thought were really interesting as we as we worked our way through the data, we have this big concern, but the largely the perception is that this is still an IT problem, which I thought was a little bit provocative because we've been screaming at the top of our lungs for a lot of years now that this is a business problem, not an IT problem. But if we look at who's spending their time thinking about this, it's IT spending a lot of time and business executives, actually a very, very small amount of time where that fits in relative to the larger landscape. Other things, maybe adding to the concern, we looked at the role of cybersecurity across the supply chain and within uh, emerging technologies. And uh, a majority of the, the respondents looked at the supply chain as a, a growing cyber concern to them that they're assuming a lot of the exposures from their their ecosystem interestingly enough they didn't perceive the reverse meaning while they saw the risks coming to them by their supply chain they didn't see them as being a risk to their supply chain to their partners yeah i don't know i'm not a psychologist but uh, it's easier it's, it's them not us which i thought was kind of an interesting thing it's kind of like Lake Wobegon effect, right? I mean, our, our company is above average and, you know. <laughs> Everyone else that's causing the problem. Right. That's right. Right. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. 
one of the things that kind of uh, uh, bubbled up from your survey was that you know the executives you spoke to seem to be most concerned about financially motivated cyber crimes and cyber attacks. I don't know if that was just sort of ransomware just manifesting itself in that particular answer um, versus, you know, state-sponsored uh, theft of intellectual property or hacktivism or those types of threats. So it, it, they really seem mostly concerned about financially motivated cyber criminals disrupting their business. Yeah, and I think that's a direct response to the ransomware events that have been happening really yeah. over the last two years, where it's turned from being a nuisance to causing six, seven, eight, nine-figure losses uh, to companies. I and mean, we, we've had a couple that have moved into the billion-dollar of expenses as a direct result of ransomware sure. and business yeah, interruption. Yeah, I'll bet you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it was one thing, and, and I don't want to diminish data breach, but um, data breach doesn't generally stop the business. Uh, it, it, there's a huge expense around notification and legal fees and, and the PR element of that. But by and large, the business keeps running, um, granted with whatever crisis management plan they have in play to, to communicate properly with their customers. But with ransomware shutting down parts to whole organizations, and, and now we're talking real dollar loss. And, and again, not to diminish one over the other, but um, I, w when you start adding in the B, you know, a billion dollars of, of actual money lost, that's affecting shareholders, that's impacting consumer confidence, uh, we've we even had a couple companies that that faced kind of corporate mortality. Like, should we shut our doors? Yeah. I mean, do we just cut off the lights at this point because we can't get back up and running? And that's never happened with a data breach before. So that that was a big thing. Uh, and I think that's where the executives have started looking at this, going, it's not just a a mild nuisance from the IT group, or this 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 could materially impact my balance sheet. You said in your survey that uh, you found that less than half of the respondents said their organization estimates financial losses from a cyber event, and only 11% quantify their estimates in economic terms, which I thought was a really interesting and a really low number generally. But for practical purposes, for our listeners, like how do you estimate financial losses from a cyber event uh, and kind of get to that dollar figure without just kind of throwing numbers out? Yeah, so uh, this is the the area where um, Marsh has brought a lot to me personally to this conversation, because when you think about actuarial or forensic accounting math, you can start to model out an array of different items. And we're at a point now where we're starting to see a lot of claim data on cyber events. And if I can look at the last, let's say, 15,000 claims, um, and I start to to bucket those into data breach or ransomware or other business interruption, I can start seeing patterns and we can start to say, well, if I've seen this amount for notification costs for the last thousand companies, that's not a bad sample size for us to say, it's a good chance that you're going to have a comparable notification cost on a per record loss basis. And you can start building that up. The The other thing that, that we see by looking at it using using this forensic accounting math is that it's not linear. 
What I mean by that is we have to think about, for example, credit card services. Um, not everyone gets credit card services. In fact, we see it start to t tail off, rel trail off relatively quickly. Um, and it's kind of now because we've had so many breaches of data that, you know, how many credit card services do you really need? But, um, you know, you might say, well, that's $49 per record loss, but really it starts to trail off after about 35, 40%, where not everyone starts, gets the credit card services. So we, we can model those out. And we've got enough examples of this where now we can bring in some of the other underwriter math where we can start doing like Monte Carlo simulations. We can do a lot of other stochastic methods to come up with a real defendable and economic model on cyber risk. I think a lot of people have looked at the insurance industry as a market-based mechanism for getting better security and software and, and I guess these days hardware as well. Do you think that that is in fact going to be the case that you know, as cyber insurance becomes ubiquitous, uh, that we'll see electronic device makers, uh, automakers, smart appliance makers, industrial machinery makers, uh, and, and obviously, you know, corporations navigate by that star, which is what does our insurer tell us matters? And um, let's do that. It's interesting. I had an article that I put out a couple months ago, and someone had sent me uh, a reprint of an article that Bruce Schneier had done, I think it was like in 2000, he, he was waiting for the insurance industry to kick in because when that happened uh, in other industries, safety and protection went up by orders of magnitude. And the example that he used was the automobile industry when we started requiring seatbelts in cars and, and the various other safety devices that are required to be mandatory and how much the safety as a result of car crashes, you know, the safety went up orders of magnitude because of the insurance mandate. But I do think that as we get more maturity in the insurance space, I don't have Bruce's crystal ball. I don't know if the government is going to mandate cyber insurance. But what I do know is that when insurers get involved in other industries, building security, automotive, things get better. I think that insurance in this context is both good for the the corporation because it's going to help protect the balance sheet uh, and it's going to help us drive a lot of uh, improvement in product capabilities and uh, and how we address those because now, now we're putting money to it and now it gets serious. Uh, so if you had one piece of advice for companies that want to start really trying to quantify and measure their cyber risk as a way to addressing it, um, what's your advice? Well, first, it's just start. Uh, I mean, like I say, 70% don't do it. So putting, putting an economic value on that cyber risk will change the conversation in a very dramatic way. And it'll give us something that's very understandable so that we can have a, a common conversation because I don't have to be a technological wizard. All I have to know is that that nine figure event, I don't like. So how do I avoid that? So I think it's a way right. of, of building a bridge between the, the deep, highly technical team and the business leadership to not try to teach them how to be technologists, but to put this risk category on the same page as other financial risks or other enterprise exposures. 
so that they can make a business decision. Is it okay that I have this really big honking exposure? And sometimes the answer might be yes, but then it's a different thing. Um, right now, I think we just, they don't know. Yeah. And, and that lack of understanding is causing concern. Kevin Richards of Marsh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Kevin Richards is the global lead for cyber risk consulting at Marsh. Up next, the consumerization of IT has generally been a good thing, with employees bringing consumer technologies like, for example, the smartphone into the office and using them to solve work problems. In all, consumerization has made workers much more productive at their jobs, even as it has scrambled the work of IT groups. One area where consumer trends are not helping, however, is with passwords and identity management. As it turns out, workers bring the same lax, shoddy password practices with them from home to their job. A study by LastPass found that 70% of workers said that there was no difference in the method they used to create passwords for personal and work accounts. All those weak passwords are a boon to hackers, and to understand how companies are trying to take control back and shore up both passwords and corporate identities, we invited Yasser Masudnia from LastPass into the Security Ledger studio. Yasser is the Senior Director of Product Management at LastPass's parent company, LogMeIn. And in this interview, he and I talk about how the blurry line between personal and work accounts hampers cybersecurity efforts within companies and how a more integrated approach to passwords, authentication, and identity can end up solving a myriad of corporate security challenges. My name is Yasser Masudnia, and I'm Senior Director of Product Management at LogMeIn. So I'm focusing at LogMeIn here on identity and access management and business offering of LastPass, trying to uh, work on a pro on products like single sign-on, password management, and multi-factor authentication, and primarily focusing on mid-market and enterprise needs for their identity and access management. Let's start by talking about, you know, identity these days means not just users, but also applications and APIs. How does that kind of complicate the identity picture for providers when, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, we were really just pretty much talking about people getting access to, you know, their desktop, laptop, you know, different servers on a, in a network environment? Uh, yes, uh, you, you, you basically put um, your finger on a very important issues. It's nowadays, it's devices, it's users, uh, and they, those users will have access from different devices. They have their own personal devices that often use. They connect from different networks. Uh, often from their home or Starbucks networks that it's not secure. They often try to access uh, applications and uh, resources through their mobile phones. So there are a number of new challenges that are coming to the pictures. And uh, IT teams and identity teams, they need to address those challenges uh, because they wanted to provide ease of use and they don't want to come on the way of the user and reducing their productivity. So they should be able to manage uh, the user's access and secure their user's access to the resources and application from variety of different um, networks with different level of security, a variety of different devices, um, different browsers, uh, to be able to securely give the user's access to their resources. 
And as we know, I mean, the the stakes for organizations are high. And, you know, you look at so many of the attacks that we read about or the compromises, you know, many of them start with some kind of uh, password compromise, whether that's just uh, credential stuffing attacks, right? Password guessing attacks, basically, or obviously, you know, account compromises of one sort or another. And, you know, SIM swapping is kind of at the far end of the sophistication for, for account takeovers are usually not that complicated. I guess, what are the what are the underlying weaknesses in the way that companies do identity and, and authentication now that are making these types of attacks so successful and profitable for cyber criminals and nation state actors? So uh, it's worth taking a look at some of the statistics around cyber attacks and especially how people use passwords. Uh, there is one part of uh, this vulnerability that is around uh, uh, weakness of the users and what what in industry they call it um, they call users as the weakest link of security. We have, um, for instance, research, uh, research like Verizon Data Breach report that says over eighty percent of um, attacks are related to stolen credential, frequent use of password, or using password across different resources. And then we have other research that shows. 59% of users most likely and or always use the same password for different accounts. 83% of users, for instance, uh, in another research, they haven't changed their password in past 12 months, despite the fact of uh, all those uh, breaches that are in the news. So imagine if I have, for instance, basically social media accounts that has been compromised or another accounts that has been compromised, and I use that, that password for my business um, application or for, I use it for more important applications, obviously that can be easily misused by the intruders to create challenges for the organization. The things we've been saying about what makes a password strong and what you should do to make sure your accounts are protected by strong passwords is pretty similar, right? They, they need to be long, they need to be unique, but historically we've kind of expected users to kind of do that on their own in a way that maybe the human brain wasn't particularly well suited to. <laughs> um, and now, as you mentioned, you know, LastPass, there, there are tools that can help people do it. But I mean, do you guys find that people have trouble letting go of this notion that the password is something that they need to have memorized, you know, that if they don't, if they can't just recall it out of the top of their head, then, then it's, it's somehow uh, not valuable or not secure. We're seeing that our base users and our customers, they are adapting very good best practices when it comes to password management. And there are examples of that. For instance, it, um, the solution allows them to um, eliminate the poor password habits by creating uh, and storing and filling in the password and a stronger password, longer password with multiple different kind of character and uppercase and lowercase. And because of the user doesn't need to know it and we can manage that across different uh, devices on your smartphone, on your laptop, on your tablet, uh, and LastPass can manage those and deliver that on time. So they are able to adapt adapt those um, best practices. Which, when you look at the challenges that they have, um, the average employees manages around 
200 accounts and um, and they're often uh, not all of them are sanctioned not all of them are also managed by IT you said two 200 accounts 200 accounts yes per employee per employee exactly wow yeah that's a lot of accounts that's a lot of account and and, and that's personal and work together that's that's uh, that's personal and work and often there is a blurred line between personal and uh, and work sure yeah and, yeah and right. there are um, for instance in one research that we've we've seen that um, I wanted to look at the exact data uh, there are about 40 percent of 47 percent of the accounts uh, that are um, that are um, that are personal accounts but are used for work uh, yeah and uh, this is the kind of shadow IT phenomenon. Exactly, exactly. And best practices like password management, if it's mm-hmm. uh, deployed properly, the user is uh, able to simply cre- automatically create stronger password. And LastPass automatically creates also a strong password for them and a storage for them. And it allows the user to access those passwords across all of their uh, devices from their phone to their tablet, to their computer, to their laptop. So a user like me, I can rely on that and use a stronger password. And I can even have, let's say, have a period of time that after a while, I want to re- rotate those strong passwords again, another good practice. And I can do that to make sure I'm not using one password across even two accounts and all mm-hmm. of them are secure securely stored in a zero knowledge way so no one other mm-hmm. would have access to that and and it's accessible whenever whenever i need it given what we've been talking about which is you know this sort of blurring of the lines between work and personal life and you know what services and technologies you're using do you see employers and it could be private sector public sector what whatever taking more of an active interest or role in managing the security of their employees, kind of private or maybe semi-private, so kind of shadow IT uh, life, because it would seem like you know if you if you have bad password hygiene in your personal accounts, you know your personal email or social media accounts these days, I mean that's something that really could impact the security of your workplace and your employer. Um, for reasons that are pretty obvious. As I mentioned, the line between business and personal apps is a, is a blurry line. And we know from our data that at least half of the most popular apps used in a workplace by LastPass user are popular consumer applications. And 70% of our um, surveyed users say that there is no difference in password created for work and personal account. That's why we we are seeing that a lot of organizations and IT teams and CIOs started thinking about, okay, how we can extend this offering to our basically our users and uh, to our employees for their personal accounts as well. For instance, the enterprise IT, um, they no longer have only worried about the security of organization within their premises because they know that the user will have access from different places. From their home, all of those. Oh, we also have a capability here as a, a that we allow for uh, enterprise user. We have premium LastPass premium as a perk that allows the users of enterprise to use the 
also premium version of the LastPass for their personal uh, personal accounts and personal um, uses. This way, they will when the company purchase the product for their organization, also can use or leverage it for their personal account uh, as well and leverage our premium uh, password management to manage. A final question, um, and it's kind of look into the crystal ball type question, uh, Yasser. Um, you know, we've been, I think people have been predicting the demise of the password for a long time, uh, but it's still very much with us as you and I talk now in 2019 about adaptive authentication and leveraging, you know, the tremendous amount of uh, sensor data that that most people have are carrying around with them via their m- smartphone and, and what have you. You know, five years from now, um, have we said goodbye to the alphanumeric password in in play and and replaced it with uh, some kind of behavioral or adaptive authentication, uh, or is it still very much part of the mix, uh, but just sort of supplemented on the on the back end with some of that and with you know machine learning and so forth. Sure. So uh, I would say um, new applications and most recent applications, they have capabilities to adapt uh, new methods of authentication, biometric authentication, multi-factor authentication, adaptive authentications. But there's always going to be legacy applications that we cannot go back and fix those and upgrade those and remove their um their dependency to the password. So uh, as we go forward, I would say we're going to rely less on password, but there's going to be application that is still we need to access and we need to have password for. Uh, and new new application and more recent application obviously mm-hmm. can adapt to the authentication easily. So kind of a, a slow attrition over time where we'll see fewer and fewer, right? Yeah. Exactly. And as we as we continue this method, um, it's important to have password management in place to cover applications that that they rely on password or we are not at the point that we can build in or integrate new methods of authentication or multi-factor authentication or passwordless authentication. So, yes, I mean, we hear a lot about the big uh, security incidents and breaches, you know, Equifax or Marriott or um, Capital One, for example. But I think you guys have data that shows that it's actually small companies who are often the most adversely impacted by uh, data breaches and password-based attacks. Talk just a little bit about what you guys found. Now, unfortunately, we're seeing that 43% 43% of small businesses also uh, fall into the victims of uh, data breaches attacks. And 60% of those uh, businesses that are compromised, the small businesses that are compromised, they go out of business within six months after being wow. compromised and after being experiencing the cyber attacks. So we'll see the cost of um, cyber attacks for a smaller organization. And when we when we surveyed our base, we saw that 85% of executives in SMBs are more concerned about uh, suffering the major data breaches than a flood or fire or physical breaking into their office. Yasser Masudniat of LogMeIn and LastPass, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. I appreciate for having me. Thank you. Yasser Masudnia is the Senior Director of Product Management 
for LastPass at LogMeIn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This podcast has been sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Thank you.